Welcome to a special monthly episode of the Jesus Calling Podcast. This month, we're featuring multiple guests speaking to the topic of how faith impacts people all over the world. As Christians, we have the ability to be the hands and feet of Jesus wherever we go, whether that's in our home country or while we're traveling abroad. Each of us are longing for the same type of close relationship with God, even though our lives may look very different. All around the world, people are seeking to know and connect with God in different ways, giving us the perfect opportunity to see Him move no matter where we are and be changed because of it. We'll start with South African evangelist Angus Buchan. My name is Angus Buchan, and I'm an evangelist stroke farmer, and we are farming in the Midlands of KwaZulu-Natal, in South Africa and I come from a a Scottish background. My uh, upbringing in uh, Central Africa was very unique. I am an African through and through. I can speak uh, the Zulu language. In fact, I preach in the Zulu language. That's in South Africa, of course. But I did all my schooling in Central Africa. Then I went back to Bonnie, Scotland, where I did my agricultural training. And from there, as a wild colonial boy, I then went uh, to Australia where they taught me to ride horses and lots of other things. (laughs) And uh, then eventually I I married and uh, then things got a bit rough in Central Africa. We packed up all our goods and chattels in a truck and trailer came across the mighty Zambezi River on a pontoon in the middle of the Rhodesian-Zambian bush war. And we came down to South Africa and settled here via Swaziland. And we literally started with nothing. My theological training college was on the farm. You know, we literally cleared this farm by hand. I didn't even have enough money for a chainsaw. I had to clear the farm with a long-handled axe, just like Abraham Lincoln. I don't say I split the the trees quite as quickly as he did, but uh, we gave it a good go. And then, of course, one of my best friends was my foreman, a Zulu, Simeon Bengu. Together, we cut this bush down and turned this into a beautiful farm as it is today. Uh, I came here with one tractor, then I managed to get another tractor, and that was about it. I was surrounded by big forests, commercial forests that grow pine trees. And the one year, a fire broke out on my farm. This fire was raging, and it was out of the rainy season, okay? There wasn't a cloud in the sky, even the size of a man's fist. And all the farmers, like they always do, they gathered around to come and help me, and they were trying to hold this fire at bay. And they could not put it out. It was too intense. We couldn't get within like 20 feet of it. And by 11 o'clock in the day, the farmers started coming to me and saying, listen, Angus, we're very sorry, but we've got to go now. We've got to pay wages because tomorrow is a public holiday. It's Easter. And I understood that. And I didn't know what to do. And I had one of my Zulu drivers next to me. His name was Le Zondi. I said to him, Le, I'm going to pray. I said this in Zulu. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask God to send rain to put the fire out. And so I got on my knees in the dust and the farmers standing around must have thought that I'd lost, you know, gone mad. And I started to pray 
I prayed, Lord, I'm your son. You've told me to cast my cares upon you. And I'm doing it, Lord. I need rain to put this fire out. Lord Jesus, if this fire jumps across the fence, I'm finished. I'm ruined. Okay? And I got up. And I'm telling you, God is my witness. I don't tell lies anymore. I'm a Christian now. There was a shot of lightning came out of a clear sky. And about two minutes later, a sound of thunder like I've never heard before. And the north wind stopped. It turned around and the wind started blowing from the south. And gentle rain came up. Now that is God's honest truth. You know, that driver of mine, <laughs> that Zulu driver, his eyes were like saucers, you know. He couldn't believe it. Look, my legs were shaking like jelly. And the farmers came up and you know what they said, Angus, you know, you're very lucky. I don't know where the rain's come from, but all the best and we'll see you later. And this is how my spiritual walk started with the Lord Jesus Christ. Award-winning Nigerian gospel singer-songwriter, Sinaj. I am Sinaj, and uh, I'm from Nigeria, from Africa. I have been singing and writing music for a little over 30 years. I'm a mother, I'm a daughter, and I mentor a whole bunch of people back here in my country and uh, whoever will let me from all over the world. And I just love serving God. I've always liked music as a, a child. I, I just grew up with sounds of music around me and uh, I just fell in love with music. So I grew up wanting to just be anywhere music is. Like in school, I joined the creative department and I just grew up dreaming of <laughs> being an artist, even though I didn't know how to be. But I mean, I just dreamt always as being an artist and expressing myself in that way. My father actually said to me, you need to go read something or because we didn't know of any musician that was so successful at that time. So he said, you need to get a degree in the university as a first choice, then you can do whatever you want to do. And so I went to school and uh, read physics. I was actually on my way to do some more work, try to go get to some school and do some more work. And then I started serving in a local church, which is Christ Embassy in my local church and um, I started serving in the choir my pastor said to me have you ever thought of you know music as a ministry but I wasn't trained in ministry and so as I grew as a Christian being born again I started understanding oh wow uh, the Lord could actually use what I'm doing as I saw the number of people that were being impacted with my music I just realized that oh wow this is more than just a hobby. It is more than just something that I sing when I want to sing. This is something that the Lord will use. And the Lord began to speak to me about it. And that's how it became so huge. The joy of just seeing the expression on people's faces as we minister the music, the joy when we travel and see them come to Christ, open up their hearts. You know, it's, it's so beautiful. 
I, I like every part of it because you have to embrace all the parts because that is part of the process, that is part of the growth. I like connecting with him in the night where everywhere is quiet and I can have time to listen to messages and be able to connect with him. I can uh, pour out my heart to him and be able to sing songs uh, with him and just spend some time with him, just you, him and me. I, I believe that those times is a continuous communication with the Lord, is a continuous communication with the Holy Spirit. That's what I know. That is, is, a, is a fellowship. He has called us into fellowship. And that's what I know. So that's how I connect. You know, when the Bible talks about it, that it is the invisible, the unseen that makes the visible world. So the things that we do not see actually are the things that are real. And that's where our faith is in. Our faith, our, sometimes faith is unseen. And sometimes the Lord will reveal to you many things that are going to happen even before you get there. And what you need to latch onto it is your faith. God holds the future, so they should not be afraid of the future. Sheila Walsh, Bible teacher and author from Scotland. Growing up in Scotland, um, I had the privilege of being part of a Christian family, which is very rare. I mean, probably less than two or three percent of our population go to church, never mind have a committed relationship with Jesus. So to have a, a mom and dad who did was really a, a rare gift. We were not designed to do life alone. If you think about the number of one another statements in the Bible, Pray for one another, love one another, bear one another's burdens. Because I think that when we isolate, and that was one of the great temptations of the pandemic, that we just kind of, sometimes by necessity, we isolated, but then sometimes by choice, we just got used to um, being kind of alone. And I have um, three, what I call my safe sisters. And we know each other's stuff, we pray for one another, and during the pandemic, the worst of it, where we couldn't get together, we would jump on these Zoom calls. They were regularly scheduled. But sometimes when I was having, like if I was having a bad day, if I felt really low and depressed and I didn't want to engage, I would just kind of text and say, hey guys, I'm, I'm just going to skip out on this one. And they would be like, no, you are not. You sit down. I don't care if you're in your pajamas and your hair looks like you climbed through a fence, you know, get on this call. And it was so good for me because there were times I didn't want to do it, but I always left feeling better because we need one another. And shame breeds in silence. It's one of the greatest tools of the enemy. And God's antidote to shame is grace. One of the things that I've had to make a, a shift on is that I got into the habit, I don't know why, but I just got into the habit. I would get up in the morning, I'd take our dogs outside, I'd put on the coffee and I'd flip on the news just to kind of catch the headlines. And I found that it was just really weighing on me. So I've completely changed my daily practice. I still let the dogs out and make coffee, but I'll go outside with my Bible and a journal and a pencil. And 
rather than viewing the Word of God through what I just heard on the news, I reverse everything now so that whatever I watch at some point to catch on the headlines, I view them through what I've just read in the Word of God. And that has made a world of difference for me. It sounds like a very basic thing, but I don't want the first noise in my life to be what's happening outside of our walls and what reporters are saying and all of that stuff. Because I, I just have come to realize we live in such a noisy world. I do love every Sunday night, I'll jump onto my Facebook page and do a Facebook Live. And at the moment, I'm doing um, a Bible study on holding on when you want to let go. But I mean, it's just been so awesome to be able to Last week, we had 30,000 women joined me on Facebook Live, and they, they watched it at different times, I guess, because some were from South Africa or from Australia or from the United Kingdom. But what I loved the most was it wasn't like, I mean, I was the one sharing the teaching, but but then we were praying for one another. And, and I loved that. I loved watching women praying for one another and saying, hey, you know, I've been through that too. Here's what the Lord used to help me. So I, I've, I'm enjoying this sense of, you know, I think sometimes in years be past in Christianity, you would have the people on the platform or you'd have the people who write the books. And I have this greater sense of us walking together home, that it's not about any particular gift within the body of Christ, but that we are praying for one another and encouraging one another. And, and I love that. I love the book. I love Jesus Listens. But this one happens on June the 11th, and it's called Jesus, My Constant Companion. I want to walk joyously with you through today, holding your hand in trusting dependence. With you beside me, I can savor the pleasures and endure the difficulties this day will bring. Help me to appreciate everything you've prepared for me. Beautiful scenery, bracing winds of adventure, sheltered nooks for resting when I'm weary, and much more. I'm thankful that you're not only my constant companion, but also my guide. You know every step of the journey ahead of me, all the way to heaven. I don't have to choose between staying close to you and staying on course, since you are the way. Being close to you is being on course. As I fix my thoughts on you, I trust you to guide me moment by moment along today's journey. Help me not to worry about what I'll encounter on the road ahead. And please keep reminding me that you are always by my side. This sets me free to focus on enjoying your presence and staying in step with you. In your joyful name, amen. If you find yourself spiritually kind of getting weak, you will find yourself in the Psalms. And the amazing thing is, I think the Psalms were given by God to the people of God so that they could pray them communally back to God. Sometimes we feel as if we have to be careful when we come to God, 
If you're having the worst day in your life or the best day in your life, God doesn't love you less or more because of your behavior. He loves you because of the finished work of Christ. And some of the Psalms, I mean, even if you look at Psalm 88, which is kind of right bang in the middle, a lot of Psalms begin with, you know, why are you downcast on my soul? But then they resolve into, I will again praise the Lord. But that one Psalm does not resolve. And I think it's God's way of saying, I understand understand there are some days some weeks some moments in life where all you can do is cry out but process your pain in the presence of your father don't isolate from God when you're hurting bring everything that's true about you to him just as Christ did in the garden of Gethsemane he was in the greatest agony of his life so much so that it was a condition that Luke, the doctor, tells us about, hematohydrosis, where you're in so much agony of soul that you literally sweat blood. But Christ processed that in the presence of his Father. And I think when we pour out all that's true, we make space for grace. That's been one of the greatest joys of this season, is realizing that until the day when we get to see Jesus face to face, we are still in these human frail shells, and we're going we're gonna to blow up, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to fall down. But this gift of asking for forgiveness is such a powerful gift. And what I've discovered is, by, by God's grace, because we can't do it by ourselves, it's too hard, but by God's grace, when we choose to forgive, it's like you unlock that prison door, but the person who is released is you, and you get to leave all that other stuff to, to God to handle, but you are set free. Travel blogger, Glow Atonmo. I am a daughter of two Nigerian immigrant parents, but I was born and raised in California. And I think having that duality of growing up in a home where it was very Nigerian in the home, but I would go to school and it was very American. And I felt like at a young age, I constantly had to like straddle between two lanes and two identities of, am I Nigerian or am I more American? And which one do I belong to? And am I doing American right? Am I doing Nigerian right? And I constantly fought for belonging longing and not only with career and entrepreneurship but just identity and like where do I belong and I come from a very traditional background where it's like you're a doctor a lawyer or a disappointment and you know my, my parents were very clear about like we have immigrated to this country to give you guys an opportunity to be doctors and lawyers don't disappoint us and that was like over my head, looming over my head. And I, I would have those conversations with my mom and I would see her disappointment and hear her disappointment. And I would just say, just give me one more year, one more year. And I, I made it a, a point to never ask her for money. So like the days where I didn't have money to feed myself, I'm like, I'm not asking her for anything because if she knows how much I'm failing, <laughs> she'll use this against me forever. <laughs> so I, I was like, I have to figure it out. I have no other choice. I'm thankful that I always kind of lived below the poverty line till I was about 25. I'm thankful that I never had means because when you're living well and you have enough finances, failure is terrifying because it's like 
you are presented with the real reality of like, I might not be able to pay my bills. I might not be able to take care of myself. I've really never been able to <laughs> take care of myself. I literally left the US with $500 in my bank account, no savings. Like I, I booked a one-way ticket to the UK and I was like, I'm going to make this work. It's do or do, succeed or succeed. I never gave myself a plan B and that gave me such a relentlessness to be like, go figure it out. And yes, I went days without eating. At my lowest, I slept on a park bench because I couldn't afford a hostel or a hotel for the night. I got into entrepreneurship first through blogging. So I started my first blog at 11 years old and my travel blog was my sixth blog. And that was the one that really took off. So for seven years, I was a full-time travel blogger, 80 countries across six continents. And that was my life. I was just, I felt like I was living the dream, like on cloud nine. And I think when I look back on that journey, I think it was that moment where I, I stopped giving the glory and the honor and the praise to God. I got so full of my own skills and what I accomplished and oh glow you're just you're killing it girl like you know and you forget who qualified you who gave you the opportunities and the blessings sometimes God needs to humble you to remind you as quickly as I give I can take and if you forget who is giving you these opportunities and what this is all for like never get to a place of pride where you feel like you're untouchable and I feel like with travel blogging I got there and it was, it was so humbling and sad. And I remember looking at the Jesus Calling devotional and I was like, this is all I have. And I turned to the page, the February 16th. I just needed that, I just needed that, that quick confirmation that there's a purpose in this. Like God is, is, is putting me through this humbling season for a reason. And it was so, so powerful. And I, again, I'll, I'll never, you know, Sarah Young, I'll never truly be able to thank her for saving my life. Because reading that, I just needed to know that there was purpose in my pain. Because when you're going through a really dark moment, you don't see an escape. All The only escape sometimes is, is ending everything. And, and I was so close to that and I just needed something, something to, to validate, like gloat, there's something else has got to come out of this. So I look back on that moment and I just thank God so much for putting me through that, that humbling season. Because on the other side of that, I had such a new approach to life. I, I dedicated, everything that I did was about serving other people. It was no longer about me. I, I don't care about what I can do for myself. How can I help the world? How can I heal the world? How can I speak to those who are also going through a traumatic experience? And it, it, it's so incredible how God will use seasons of, of pain to really set you up for your next season of elevation. And that was, that was what that was. Australian worship leader, Darlene Sheck. My husband Mark and I pastor a church on the central coast of New South Wales in Australia called Hope Unlimited Church, which we love doing. You know, I'm also a writer of songs and books and all sorts of things. I grew up in Queensland in Australia, um, the eldest of four kids. My grandparents actually on my dad's side, very strong Christian people. And you know, I really think I'm here today because of their prayers. You know, every morning they prayed for us by name. There were earlier days where I remember succinctly being in church, being around worship, 
being around the presence of God and the people of God. And I know something was really birthed in my heart from a young age, but I never knew really how to have a relationship with God. And really how I came to become a Christian was my family went through a terrible breakup, as many families do, and I found myself at 15 living out of home, renting a little room in a family's home that went to a church. So during that season, my father ended up rededicating his life to Christ, came and picked me up from where I lived, took me to the church that this family went to, and I got radically born again. What I love about pastoring, I love just being with the people in the trenches. I love being in the hospitals. I love being at people's bedsides. I think it's the most profound privilege to be there when it, there's birth and when there's death. I feel like that is one of the great honors we have as being shepherds. It can be hard when people willfully make cho choices that you know is gonna hurt them or their families. And when you know they know better, when you've prayed with people and you believe for miracles and the miracle doesn't come through and you've got to walk through that and negotiate your own soul in those spaces. Um, but the joy is always, my, my husband says, what we are is we're missionaries of hope. And we, if you can trade in hope, then you can always trade in something that is fantastic. And that is the glory of the job. There's an ache in people across the earth and in, in the church, an ache to belong. You know, when Jesus walked around the earth, what did he walk around doing? He, he preached to the masses, but then he also saw the one. He encouraged us around fellowship, around tables, around eye contact, around laying on of hands, around those things that actually require vulnerability of relationship. I think people are aching for relationship. The beauty of church is about family and about there's a place for you here. And if you are, we come together to be fueled, not to be entertained. We come to be fueled so that we can go. We come together as the body. That means if you're not there, then we're missing something. You know, so I think that there is this urgency for us to open our hands wider, our arms wider. No judgment. You come and I'm, you're gonna be seen and you're gonna see me and we're gonna connect and we're gonna pray and I'm gonna believe for your miracle and you're gonna believe for my miracle and together in this great gang, we are the church. We are part of the kingdom of God. And then the most exciting bit, we get to go and we get to be his hands and feet wherever we go. I'm excited to see what's gonna happen in the years to come as we get vulnerable again and sit at tables together and believe God for the impossible. Misha Paris, a British soul singer. 
I was born in London and my mum and dad came to England when they were really young. They were like five or six. We call it the Windrush generation. My grandparents were the Windrush generation and then they then brought over, you know, their children. And then my mum and dad went to school in the UK and we have this massive church community in the UK because Americans always, especially black Americans, always assume that it's just them that have that experience, you know. But we had it too. We brought it from the, the Caribbean, you know, we brought the church to, to the UK. So it was like, you know, it was just an amazing experience growing up in the Pentecostal churches. It was fantastic. My dad's very cultured, you know, he would take us to Chinese restaurants and all these different kind of things. Back then, it was very rare to have these different cultures, restaurants in the UK. It was very rare then, you know. And my dad was the one taking us to all these different types of food and stuff like My dad's really cultured, very educated guy. So he would start to play me like Marvin Gaye and Miles Davis and, you know, Isley Brothers. And so it was like, you know, starting to hear all that music and that influence. I was like, oh, I've got to make this kind of music, man. I've got to get with this soul stuff. This is really cool. But Jesus is cool, man, but I'm done with that now. I need to go and do something else. Then I had to tell my grandparents, you know what I'm saying? Because I'm a bit of a star now. I'm a gospel singer in the UK that everyone knows about because I've been singing in it since I was a kid. You see what I mean? and I'm winning awards and all this stuff. So when I went to my grandparents at 17 saying, um, I want you to sign this deal for me because I got approached to be managed by this fantastic man. They loved him, but they didn't want me to leave the church. And so I literally had to beg them to sign this agreement because I was too young to do it by myself. And in the end they did, they signed it. And then a couple of weeks later, the record was released and the album went straight to number one. I was on top of the pops, I was on all the TV shows, it was, it was massive, big. So the, the fame is like a psychosis anyway. You do feel like you're going a little bit mad. Everyone's treating you different, you know, suddenly you're like the second coming. And that's really intoxicating. You're so important to everyone all of a sudden. Everything you say is right. Very cool. <laughs> I had about a 15-year run of everything just being amazing. And then suddenly it starts to go down a bit. And then suddenly you start to, you're not, the records aren't selling as much. And then it starts to go a bit different. And you see, at those moments, that's when the faith comes in. Like what we call devotion is like in the morning, I wake up and I have like an hour with him in the morning, read a scripture. And so I always do it at seven, because at six, seven in the morning, it's really quiet. You see, the devotion is really good because it really gets you in touch with him. Every single disappointment that I've been through, it's my faith that's got me through it. Because that's what grandma always used to say and granddad. They say, whenever you're going through it, Mish, get on your knees. Just get on your knees, girl. And I swear, I don't care if you don't believe in anything, I, but I have to tell you, if I never had that, there's no way I could still be here 33 year, years later and still have my faculties intact. That's the only thing, because there's something that, I don't know what it is, I just feel that my steps have always been ordered. You know, I feel like even the times when I did forget the faith, there was something that was always looking after me. People say to me now, like, Misha, your voice sounds so different. And I'm telling you, it's it's literally, it's the journey. What you're hearing is, the, it's, it's the journey. You can't learn that. You are your living testimony. Your life is your voice. 
Rwandan genocide survivor, Jean Lakin. I remember right before the genocide, 1994, I went to school and I was in middle school. And then my teacher, they divided us, they segregated us by ethnicity. So the teacher said, the Tutsis on one side, the Hutus on the other side. And so there I stood in front of the class. I was among the top students and I had no idea who I was. I had no clue who, which ethnicity that I belonged to. And again, it was because my parents believed in this human family, this uh, kingdom family that most people tend to not see nowadays. Um, so what my teacher said, well, if you do not know which group you belong to, do not come to class tomorrow or you will be expelled. And so I ran home and I went and I asked my mom and I said, who am I? But I remember my mother's response, which was, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry yourself. You're a child of God. But I was like, that's not enough. <laughs> I need more. Give me more because I need to go back to class and explain to my teacher and see it according to my ethnicity. And so she finally, after I went back and forth and probed a little bit more, she said, you're a Tutsi. And it just felt like this, uh, it was almost like, it felt like somebody just punched me in the belly because I was like, oh no, I am among the group that is not wanted, that is not accepted. They used to call the Tutsis the aliens in the country. The, the Tutsis were referred to as snakes and cockroaches. And so I, I felt like, oh no, I just really don't, you know, it's like something like identity just that, you know, I went from being this human to being identified and classified into this place that wasn't wanted in the country. On April 7th, the genocide started. 500,000 machetes that were imported into the country, given to the Hutu ethnicity to be able to kill the Tutsis. The way people turn against each other so quickly, it's something that even up to this day, I still don't understand how it could be possible. So we went from being from this home, beautiful home, into the bushes hiding for our lives and watching our neighbors, our loved ones, our families being basically killed because of how God had created us. The genocide was just so horrific that they didn't spare anybody, even a three-week-old little baby. Grandma and grandpa who might have not even been able to walk were killed because of the way God has created them. So it was a very dark place. It was a dark moment of my life. My parents were devoted Catholics, so they taught me the power of prayer. When I pray, I don't think God is like, you know, somewhere in another room or God is like, you know, high up there in the sky that I cannot have that access to him. I really believe one of God's name is that he's a God who sees us. He's a God who sees all the details of our lives. And he knows the, the print of our hands. He knows how many, you know, hairs are on our head. And so when I speak, when I pray, I think that God is right there next to me, listening to me, watching me through all of that. It's the same way that I saw God in the genocide. Again, everything is stripped away. And my Now mom is dead, I know. And I started praying simple prayer. The simple prayer that I had was, God, blind them 
why did these men and women with machetes and children were, you know, young kids were killing people too. I said, why did these people that they might not see me? And it was in a way of saying that, I know they can see me, God, but you have a way of working miracles. Blind them that they might not see me. I went back and I counted how many times that God revealed himself to me. And when I was in the presence of these people with machetes and guns and, and grenades, you know, with machetes, with blood dripping off those tools, standing in their presence and saying, God, blind them that they might not see me over 200 times. And so I'm seeing miracles and over and over again. And I say, okay, this prayer is working. God is on my behalf. God is working in this midst of uh, this darkness. And a few times they would actually have me. They would say, well, we captured you. Go ahead and pray. We're going to give you 15 minutes to pray and we'll kill you. And prayer is all I had. And prayer is everything. I mean, everything was just taken away, but I knew I could access that peace with God through prayer. That I knew I, I had, God was seeing me through this chaos. And so I really prayed. And a few times I, I would actually sit there and pray and pray and pray. And these men will look like they're drunk or they look like they got distracted by something. And I felt like that was the prayer that God said, <laughs> the blinding. I felt like they forgot that I was actually sitting there and they just walk off. And it was God really doing, working on my behalf, God working, seeing me through all of this in the middle of the genocide. God, you know, created us with a choice. So people can choose to do good. People can choose to do evil work as well. So there's no way of resenting God because he created these people who chose to do the evil work. It wasn't God with machetes and clubs killing people in Rwanda. It was the people that he had created who went away from his, out of his love and decided to hurt and harm other people. I remember just, you know, wandering in the streets, feeling so lonely, feeling so sad, so depressed because of all the things that I had just witnessed in that six months after the genocide. And thinking back to how well I had it to now not having even the basic needs, the, the basic necessities. And I remember having a conversation with God. I was like, I want to be able to forgive these people. I really want to be able to let go of what happened to me and be normal. But I couldn't get myself to forgive what had happened in the genocide. And again, I said, God, I need your help. I need you. I cannot do this by myself. Give me the strength to do this. When I was able to forgive. When I was able to say, I forgive you for the rape, for raping me. I forgive you for killing my family. I forgive you for all the pains, all the nights I spent thinking about all the pain you caused in my life. That was God's gift. I felt so much joy. I felt so much peace in my heart. I felt like there was this possibility that just opened for me, these potentials that I felt like I could never reach 
that somehow I was able to reach. And again, it's because of that love of God that we can fully, fully experience uh, joy. We can free our mind if we are able to forgive. What is the best way to really begin a day than beginning your day with God? So Jesus Calling has been that book for me that I begin my day with God. And a lot of people have asked me, you're always smiling, you're always happy, you're always content. What, what's going on? That's the Jesus that I get to meet with. My cup of coffee, my Jesus first in the morning. This is a passage from March 16th entry of Jesus Calling. It is good that you recognize your weakness. That keeps you looking to me, your strengths. Abundant life is not necessarily healthy and wealth. It is living in continual dependence on me. Instead of trying to fit this day into your preconceived mold, relax and be looking out for what I am doing. This mindset will free you to enjoy me, to find what I have planned for you to do. This is far better than trying to make things go according to your own plan. God has a way of just touching our hearts and our minds in a right time. That has been so wonderful to me. God has just been blessing me to be able to do the work that I do. It's just, it's been incredible. Thank you for listening to this special monthly series as part of the Jesus Calling podcast. Be sure and follow the Jesus Calling podcast so you can hear the full stories from each of these guests. And also make sure you get these special bonus episodes each month. For more information on Jesus Calling and Sarah Young, please visit JesusCalling.com or visit us on our social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.